Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every program, we talk about a new book that looks at Africa and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Exposures, Photography and Africa, and the author is Erin Haney. It's a beautiful and fascinating book that looks at how Africa has been seen from behind a lens over the last couple of centuries. I really enjoyed talking to Erin, and so here's the interview. Okay, well, joining me on the line from Washington, D.C., or just outside Washington, D.C., is Erin Haney, the person behind Exposures, Photography and Africa. Erin, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi there, Nicholas. Well, welcome. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's not a normal book that we would do on uh, New Books Network for the simple reason that this is a book mainly about something far, far, far more visual. Um, it's, a, it, it's a collection of snapshots. It's a collection of photographs that have been taken in Africa at various points over the last couple of hundred years of all sorts of things. We've got uh, oil platforms. We've got pictures of uh, of people in ceremonial dress. We've got pictures of industry. We've got pictures of colonialism. There's all sorts going on here. And I just wondered, um, can, uh, what's the, the kind of idea behind the book? No, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, I'm, I'm coming at it from the perspective of somebody who's interested, uh, first and foremost, sort of in photography. Um, and the fact that um, the sort of perceived ideas about um, how photography has unfolded in the world um, has sort of had its centers in, uh, in Europe and the United States. And being somebody who's, who's studied Africa for quite a while and has lived there, um, I was interested in showing images from the sort of whole range of, um, of the photographic past in Africa to, to give a sense of um, the, the breadth of practice that was happening there. Um, really beyond the colonial sort of presence, because this is the sort of understood frame, is um, there, that, that, um, you know, the, the, uh, that Africans sort of snatched the camera from the hands of colonizers and sort of ran away with it, and that, that maybe only happened in the 1950s. And of course, by, by doing a work like this, you get a sense of, you know, that photography happened really instantly, nearly. Um, and it happened around the world. And so by 1840s, we have people that are working on the West African coast and in Cairo and in, you know, sort of South Africa and all sorts of places. And so I think that surprises a lot of people. And it sort of deepens our understanding of, um, you know, the, the vision of Africa that a lot of us unfortunately have, which is, you know, Hollywood and National Geographic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's very limiting. So I wanted to sort of bring that out. So. 
Well, uh, I think you succeed. It's a beautiful book and a fascinating one, especially for anyone who's even vaguely interested in in any of the uh, many aspects of Africa that it covers. Uh, of course, it's a bit of a challenge for us because you're over in Washington, I'm here in London, and right. we've got to be able to describe what's going on in the books, in the photographs that we're choosing um, to people who cannot see the book. But anyway, we're, we're the, well, I'll probably bump the microphone quite a few times leafing through. But what, <laughs> before we even get to that, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, okay. I I, uh, I have been working uh, in Africa since, um, what, 1993, so sort of quite a long time. I, I was um, there originally as a visiting undergrad. I went to school at McAllister in uh, Minnesota, um, and I had spent a lot of time um, with African students and realized that my knowledge of, uh, of the continent was woefully lacking. Um, our American educational system doesn't really live up to the global uh, history idea <laughs> as much as as much as one might like, and so I just thought, well, I, I better head over and sort of see see what was happening. So I spent time in Kenya, and then after I graduated, I went and uh, lived in Accra, Ghana, for a long time, and sort of went back and forth, and then um, you know started a, a master's and a PhD in African studies and art history at Northwestern University in Chicago, and then finally made my way to to SOAS um, mm -hmm. at, there in London. And uh, where I worked with John Picton and really just decided to immerse myself, um, you know, fully in, in this idea of what were the sort of histories of uh, photography. And I was interested in Accra because I'd spent a long time there. But, you know, as I started working, I realized um, between the, the riches of photographic um, sort of legacies, the colonial sort of in, in institutions that are there in London and other parts of the UK, um, as well as in France and in Switzerland and all these other places, you know, that there was a lot there and um, and very few people had really looked at it and tried to think about the history. They were captivated by the images. There were lots of people who were thinking about the images but were, weren't really thinking about the larger sort of sense of, of what was happening. So, um, you know, the seduction of the images is one thing, but I think the stories behind them, you know, for an art historian and for somebody who's interested in thinking about them beyond the, the idea, the, the frame of reference of the museum or a coffee table book um, is, is what I wanted to try and get at by talking to lots of people that it was very clear that there were um, intense stories there and that, um, you know, photography has, you know, a serious um, history and a serious meaning for lots and lots of people. It's very valuable and, uh, you know, and that it's moving around a lot. So mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to sort of, um, you know, it's a politicized sort of subject, I think, right now, especially. So, how, how did you choose the photographs that are in the book? Because, I mean, you've got, uh, what is it, 180 pages or so. You've got, how many photographs are in here? About 100. Uh, it's, uh, it, I mean, there, there's such a variation. There's such a range in the types of uh, a photograph, the subjects, the times when they're taken, etc. Uh, I was uh, when I first looked at it, I, I wondered how you'd actually gone and sifted through everything out there to choose these ones. Yeah, no, it's very difficult. I had spent a lot of time, um, you know, digging through sort of West African archival material. And then here in D.C. at the Smithsonian, which is where I ended up doing some more research at the National Museum of African Art, um, there are quite a large photographic archive here. And a lot of the images, or I would say maybe a fifth of the images in the collection are um, in the book are taken from that collection, which covers much of the African continent and has quite a lot of historical depth to it. 
But I mean, really, there are images sort of from all over the place, from um, Middle Eastern collections, from family collections on the continent, um, from photographers who are maybe American or European who, who've worked on the continent a lot. And I really did just want to get at the the range of material, not to say that this is a comprehensive sort of overview of practice that's happened there, but really just to spur people's interest so that for um, for those who know nothing about it, you know, it will really give a tantalizing sort of taste of mm. what, you know, the breadth of, of practice that's happened, but also for people who are interested in studying it more or from, or thinking, used to thinking about sort of African creative practice as a, um, you know, as, as more textiles or painting or, um, or, you know, sculpture, things like this, um, that there, there is a, an interesting sort of cross fertilization of, um, of image making that happens. And photography has always been part of that. So, um, but mm. I did want to avoid sort of, um, the typical, um, war journalism. I did mm. want to avoid the sort of Hollywood, um, National Geographic kinds of imagery, and so I, there are, you know, very deliberate sort of um, turning towards cer- certain subjects and moving away from other ones that I feel like have been, you know. Mm. Well, the variety about. certainly works for me. Um, let's start uh, with the photograph that you've got on the on the page opposite your introduction, and that's the. Uh, I'll read out what the title is. It's it's a deck. Passengers on an African Steamer, 1890 to 1900. And uh, we'll just start off by, by talking about what's in the photograph itself. Basically, you've got, you've got a section of a, of a steamer at sea somewhere, and they look as though there's probably two to three dozen people um, gathered there in amongst all of the clanking machinery. You've got people up on a guardrail above. They look as though they're dressed slightly better, and they're looking down at people who are no doubt in some form of steerage class or whatever. Can you tell us a little bit more that, uh, about what's going on here? Sure, sure. I mean, I think what's happening is this is a steamer off the coast of West Africa. It could be by, you know, any of those those big port cities, Lagos, Accra, Cape Coast. Um, and uh, what what is happening in the image to me that's interesting is one that a photographer wanted to. We don't know who the identity of the photographer was, but he, he wanted to, um, you know, capture the sense of, of travel and mobility that was happening really from the 1850s. Um, all along Africa's coast. And so, um, you know, we, we have here, you know, people that are very well dressed that could, you know, could be coming from England, could be coming, um, you know, headed down to South Africa. Um, there are sailors, there are laborers, there are people who could be clergy members or sort of, mis- you know, um, working with missionaries or with schools. Um, we need to remember at this time, too, there was an African sort of intelligentsia that, that was coming around. And, you know, people were being sent to, to Europe all the time um, to go to school. So it sort of just gives us a glimpse of um, the, the, the sort of different groups of people that were moving around. And that, that um, travel was sort of um, relatively easy and cheap uh, as these things go. Um, and so people could easily go from, from Accra to Lagos or to Freetown and Monrovia mm-hmm. up to Liverpool. Um, you know, and it, it was an investment, but it was something that people could um, – fairly easily do, and, and that this mobility is actually part of a long, uh, a long sort of um, sense of, uh, a long sort of strand of people who've been migrating back and forth. And mm-hmm. of course, people were going across the land too, but the sea travel really rose around the time of the advent of photography and became very easy and sort of um, manageable 
because of that rise of the steamship trade. Mm. Um, I, I, I see this photograph as fitting in very nicely with this uh, picture a little bit further on in the book, which is a plate-laying gang-shifting camp on the Uganda Railway, and that's a, a decade right. or so later on. And again, right. this, is, this is another photograph of something that it, it, it's about as far away from a studio-posed shot as it would be possible to get. It's a three, four, five railway carriage absolutely covered with gangs of what look actually like uh, Indian or subcontinental laborers, obviously right. shifting camp. But again, it, it's all about this uh, new forms of transport, new forms of, of outside intrusion, finding right. their way in and, and mobility, etc. And big themes like this. What I like about this is, is it really shows the power of a, of a photograph to be able to capture something that it's very easy to read about in, in the book. And this is obviously the, the entrance of the, the grand entrance of the European powers into Africa. And here you actually see a proper representation of, of what it was actually like on the ground. Right, right, exactly, and you know, and that those forms of travel are, are uh, those forms of travel and sort of uh, movement are quite different. I mean, this was about indentured um, laborers, um, you know, coming over from India, which you know was was um, you know very common in the 19th century, um, coming over to East Africa and sort of building the colonial infrastructure of the railways and the creation of cities like Nairobi, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, you know, and in other places. Which, which um, you know, this conscripted labor and the sort of economic conditions are very different in different parts of Africa. And I hope that those images in the book also give that sense that, you know, we can't really talk about Africa as one place where everything happened and unfolded in the same way in each place, that the conditions are quite different in each place. Mm. Um, Let's turn now to page 29, where there's uh, a self-portrait by one of these pioneers of this new technology photography who's actually bringing us all of these amazing images uh and there's lots and lots and lots from around this this time the, towards the end of the 19th century can you tell us a little bit about this chap uh gerhard you said that there was a way of pronouncing this um Luterot? right right gerhard Luterot was uh one of the pioneers at least of um photography certainly in uh, the gold coast what's now ghana he um was from a big trading family um, with a Danish sort of ancestor and um, and very high high born sort of um, merchant families that were based in in Accra, and so um, we have this guy sort of taking a picture, which is quite late. He started working in the 1870s, and he moved as you know photographers tended to do back then. You know, no matter where they were in the world, um, there was a sense um, that people did need to migrate um, continuously to to sort of keep. Uh, to keep things together, you know, that there were only a certain number of patrons that were able to to pay for, um, you know, an, a portrait at that time, and they were quite expensive. So people kept moving around, and he was one of them. He moved, you know, from Freetown. He mentions going, you know, um, to Accra and to Fernando Po, this island sort of south of um, mm-hmm. the coast of Lagos in Cameroon now. And it's possible that he also went down as far um, south as Angola. So he certainly plied the trade of uh, the West African coast and all of the cities there. Um, he certainly also, we know that his some of his brothers were educated in England and went back and forth. Um, so they were part of this sort of intelligentsia and merchant class that um, had means. And um, he and several of his brothers actually, and then nephews, um, also set up studios all along uh, in Nigeria, in Fernando Po, in, in Ghana. 
And uh, his story is really interesting. I managed to talk to a number of his descendants who also, you know, this, this, um, this sort of dynasty of photographers, the Lutrat family, um, were working certainly in, in uh, Ghana from 1870 to around 1940, just before the, uh, you know, World War II. So, you know, it's a tremendous amount of time of, of um, you know, expansive operations and things that they saw. And, um, you know, they, they did lots of other things, too. They moved people around, um, you know, as, as West Africans migrated all around for work and for labor, you know, sort of supporting the colonial administration and its projects, working as its soldiers. So he was one of the people who sort of organized and so oversaw the movement of people as well as documenting mm -hmm. um, during his own travels the changes in the landscape, you know, the changes to cities as they were happening. Mm -hmm. and, and portraits wherever anybody would like. And it, and it wasn't simply a matter of uh, photographing European colonials that were there. You know, of course, um, anybody who had means, whether they were sort of, a, you know, um, people of, of local authority or, or royalty or, you know, the sort of rising merchant people or soldiers, um, you know, we have a surprising diversity of subjects that he took, that Gerhard Lutrat took. Um, and uh, he's very much remembered as such, you know, as, as a pioneer and is an extremely important figure within the family mm -hmm. um, that still reside in Accra today. And I think it's worth saying that he also takes a splendid photograph of himself. He looks like a, he's a very handsome man. He's got a splendid big mustache. He's wearing a very, very handsome little tailored suit, a, a bow tie. He's got what looks like some kind of almost leopard skin cap on his on his head, although I can't really make that, that out. And he's leaning against quite a, um, an ornate piece of furniture. It's, it's a lovely photograph. It is, and you, you'll notice too that he actually has a, a horse whip in his hands. I was horse trying to work that out. Was really, really, um, um, you know, probably sort of an elite practice, but you know, happened in Lagos and Accra and in Freetown and sort of all over the place. Um, and people would gather for these horse races. So in you know, in the photographs that he and other photographers took, we see um, spectators, you know, decked out and sort of. Uh, attending these horse races and looking on and um you know it was, it was a big business <laughs> so yeah there he is sort of enfolding everything in that in that self-portrait so. uh, he probably used that to sell his uh, his expertise as well i imagine exactly i mean here here he is the his quintessential cosmopolitan exactly he's the quintessential well-traveled um beautifully dressed cosmopolitan you know self-assured and ready to go anywhere mm. take your portrait and transform you into one of those people Absolutely. It, beautifully dressed, but dressed in a very Western style. Uh, it's got to be noted. And then later on in the book, obviously, um, there are lots and lots of photographs which are snapshots of customs, modes of dress, etc. Um, that, that some of them no doubt are lost now. There's a remarkable photograph about halfway through halfway through the book. And that is um, the title is A Girl Before the Fattening Process. And this is in Nigeria. Uh, southwest right. uh, southern Nigeria and she's been painted in chalk and she's right. quite she's quite chubby around the middle can you explain what's going on here um as as far as we can tell and I'm sure there are people that could um even sort of talk about this with more authority but this was I'm interested in this photograph of this girl um she has um she's standing in front of a very beautiful elaborate painted backdrop mm -hmm. um you know with sort of Victorian curtains and, and wall moldings and the things um, her whole entire body is covered with chalk and she's got this beautiful straw um, sort of, um, you know, girdle wrapped around her, her waist, which she's holding. 
her her face has been beautifully or adorned with sort of tracery of chalk, and then she's got this um, incredible coiffure of um, you know looped braids and hair with all sorts of ornaments in her hair, and then she's holding a fan that you see um, in any sort of 1880s 1890s picture of uh, you know Victorian um, you know of Victorian life, sort of wherever you go, you would see these little um, folded round paper fans. Um, so there she is, and she's um, she's presenting herself for the camera, and probably a, uh, her family commissioned this photograph to mark the entrance of her um, going into this process where um, girls of a certain age, maybe it's before puberty, might, it might be um, around puberty, but anyway, um, a lot of places, um, there's a, a, a time in which girls are sort of taken off to, into seclusion, and they're... Um, um, educated in all the ways of how to be a woman and they, um, you know, sort of are, um, sort of, it's sort of the, the, the big step between, um, childhood and adulthood. And of course, this is a, a time where the, um, the family has to, um, lavish lots and lots of expense on the sort of upkeep and maintenance and the education of the girls at this time. And part of it is, is, is the public, um, presentation of these girls at certain, moments within this sort of um, initiation process, you could say. And the public debut, um, of which this might be a sort of final image or a, an image of something, you know, just one stage that was happening, um, what we see here is part of a, what would have been a public performance where the girl was sort of unveiled um, in all of her finery. And, and this was a, a sort of proclamation that she's come through um, to the other side. And we have this all over the place, but the fact that cameras were were um, sort of uh, being called upon to document this, and that this was considered, you know, a very high point of, at which you could photograph a young girl and make a, a portrait of a young girl or a, a young woman, as it were, um, is, is really interesting. The fact that that comes through quite easily um, for a, a certain urban patronage early on. And then also that it, it became folded into, uh, you know, a, a postcard that was published. You know, so we see here photographers taking these beautiful images that were meant for private, um, you know, that were originally privately commissioned. And then they, they enter into a larger sort of realm of um, images that are sent around and sort of give us a sense, um, outsiders a sense of what was going on in Africa, but become very exoticized and, you know, take on a very different tone than would have been, you know, certainly the case for, for the family mm -hmm. um, and the local people who were, who were seeing this image and seeing this sort of sight of her. Yeah, so. it, it, it's remarkable how it's been made into a, uh, a postcard. There was another thing that I actually wanted to ask you about, and it kind of follows on from this point. It's actually on the next page, and it's about a, uh, it, it's a celebrated African lecturer called Jacob C. Hazley. Um, and it's got a front and a back to it. It's got this, again, a very, very dignified portrait of the man himself uh, dressed in, in Western clothes. But it says that this is a, a carte de visite. Sorry, my French has never been a strong point. Um, so what was this used for? Was this, uh, was this a way that people could actually hand over a document saying, well, this is me, this is where I come from, this is what I've done? Mm -hmm, exactly right. Um, he was, uh, I mean, my guess is that this, this um, very detailed bi biography that he puts on the back, we don't often see this on carte visites. We often see just a name or maybe a name and, a, and an address. But he has very carefully sort of turned this into a little, you know, mini um, 
TV, as it were, you know, mm. listing his experience, his travels all over Africa, the grand personages with which he worked. And uh, he came over probably, um, you know, for the, uh, the United States Centennial Exposition, which happened mm -hmm. in Philadelphia in 1876. And so he was very cleverly um, showing his credentials and saying, I am not an American. I am a West African. Mm -hmm. I come from Sierra Leone, and I've put all of my experiences out there as a lecturer and as a writer and a traveler so that um, anybody can see where I am and where I'm coming from because, of course, the presumption that he was, you know, that he, he imagined that he was going to contend with, in particular with American audiences, I should think, um, you know, was very different. And so he was, he was sort of trying to um, market himself in a certain way by having this beautiful portrait and a very detailed biography. I think it's a rare carte de visite because it doesn't, um, we don't often see that kind of detail, but I think it's, it's a really interesting, um, you know, sort of object that gives a sense of people moving out in the wider world and having um, a set of expectations that, um, you know, of, of who they're going to be, that, that um, they need to defy right at the beginning by showing the breadth of their education and, uh, and experience. So, well, well, you say it's a bit, bit like a curriculum vitae or something. It's a bit like a, a personal website or something. I mean, what it actually does is something that uh, we all still need to do today, and that is find a way of getting your credentials across, etc. So uh, it's, it's a remarkable way of doing that. Uh, and he does seem to have travel, traveled quite a lot. Uh, I'll, I'll just read out the first couple of lines of it just so that people get a, an idea of it. And this is on the, 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 the back of this card, which starts off with a big picture of him. And it says, Jacob C. Hazley, the celebrated African lecturer. And then on this second side, this dense text saying, uh, Jacob C. Hazley was born at Freetown, Sierra Leone, West Africa, September the 17th, 1835. He was the second son of Jacob Boston and Elizabeth Hazley, his grandfather. And then it just keeps on going. It, it's quite remarkable. It tells you when he when he went up which river and when he traveled across to the United States, as you said. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed that. Uh, there's a, a much more modern portrait that I wanted to also move on to. Uh, and this is taking us 50 years forward, 60 years forward to uh, 1952 to 55. And the, this is a portrait, a much more modern one. Of a, of a gentleman that just looks astonishingly stylish and dignified. He's got a, um, he's looking off into the middle distance. He's got a very, very handsome uh, sort of um, visage on his face. He's wearing a very sharp suit. His, his collar on his, on his shirt is perfectly positioned, you know, sticking out across the collar on his, on his jacket. He's got a lovely big handkerchief sticking out of his pocket. He's got a ring and a, and a, and a watch and he's holding a, a pair of, uh, a pair of um, shades quite delicately in his hand. This is a very, very different view of, uh, of Africa. And of course, this is the 1950s. This was a very confident time for Africa as well. Mm-hmm. No, exactly, um, and and it's by as you know as we we um, we can see the the renowned photographer Seydou Keita, um, a Bamako-based photographer who worked um, from the sort of late '40s through to the '60s and and carried on a private practice after that, um, but had a studio practice and then also worked as a government photographer, and uh, Keita's studio and uh, other studios in Bamako were known because that was the sort of center of a major um, railway railroad crossways uh, in West Africa, a bit further north, well away from the coastline. And, um, you know, so there were all sorts of people coming through that place, through Bamako as a hub, all of the time. And um, Keita's studio was known as a place where you should go 
and get your photograph taken. So, um, of course, this was a time when people were dressing, you know, people had been dressing in European um, dress um, as, as they could afford it and as they chose to um, for, you know, hundreds of years. And so maybe it's um, surprising to see this, but we also see a lot of Keita's images, you know, women dressed in, in full boo-boos with incredibly elaborate sort of jewelry and hairstyles and everything else. So to see Keita's studio is to see lots and lots of um all different kinds of people coming through and how they position themselves in front of the photographer's camera is really interesting. But Keita was a master of um, tilting the camera just so and, um, you know, prided himself on getting the sort of um, the beautiful essence and the surfaces of, of his subjects, uh, you know, how he posed them, how he dressed and arranged them. And of course, how they arranged themselves too were, were all part of the story um, and his photographs um, are, are so powerful to us today because they, um, you know, they were huge black and white um, negatives that he, glass negatives that he used. And so he, you know, the, the images are very clear and stunningly um, sort of complex and with these beautiful tones from uh, all the way from dark, dark, shady blacks all the way to these crisp whites of his collar. And, uh, you know, the way he lit his subjects and everything else with sort of minimal, um, you know, ba sort of basic, um, you know, camera equipment and natural light and things like that um, are stunning, are stunning. And mm -hmm. they've really captured a lot of um, attention, particularly in the West. There have been exhibitions of Seydou Keita's work, and they really are all portraits. Um, and they're just, you know, a astonishing surprises for, for those of us who may not know. Um, the, the sort of range of, of which people, um, how people were looking and how people were dressing themselves. Mm -hmm. But you also mentioned the 1950s, you know, this was the rise of, you know, really, um, you know, strong, uh, you know, nationalist sentiment and, you know, um, the idea that really independence was coming quite soon to places like Mali and Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire, uh, you know, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria. All over the place, you know, the, there was a, a really a big sense of, you know, that the end of colonialism was near. And so um, the confidence, like you said, um, you know, the idea that there was going to be um, self-rule soon and um, and how we're repositioning ourselves within a larger world. All of this comes out in, in photographs like this. Absolutely. I, I think that the, the main thing that comes out with the confidence is the way he's standing uh, or the way he's sitting rather and, uh, and and the whole confident pose, the way he's looking forward into a into a future. And sort of there's a slight little half smile on his on his uh, on his face that I find quite enchanting. Um, and also when you're talking about the detail, you can see the skin tones, you can see the uh, you can see the individual warp and weave of the uh, of the suit that he's wearing. I think it, it really is an astonishingly handsome picture. Uh, I think it, it, it bears up next to anything that you'd see into a, in a magazine these days. Exactly. After this, there's a there's quite a large section of the book that really goes back to more colonial times. You've got lots of, uh, you know, for instance, in the Belgian Congo, you've got lots of pictures of, of African soldiers standing with their, with their little blue uniforms, uh, barefoot and holding rifles. You've got uh, lots of pictures of uh, ivory caravans, uh, camel bearers, etc. in the interior. Um, was, the, uh, was photography in that time, I know that we're going back in time slightly, sure. was photography a way of almost advertising colonial life and colonial achievements for European powers? Oh, of course, certainly. It was a huge part of it. And... Um, 
um, you know, it, it's a, an unavoidable part of the story. It, it's um, absolutely crucial to um, understanding a more complex idea of what colonialism was, because, you know, we see these images of, um, you know, wealth, essentially, wealth in rubber, in, uh, in ivory, in gold, and in palm oil being taken out, and the sort of infrastructure that was being built, of course, this was conceived of in the case of um, King Leopold and, uh, you know, and this area as his own private um, fiefdom. And so he, you know, all of this extraction of wealth went towards, um, you know, the, the personal enrichment of, uh, of the city and of, of his own his own sort of private coffers. Mm. So you know, the, there's an, an, a, ma- a massive amount of exploitation that sort of behind the scenes, the scenes in imagery such as this. And it gets masked when we look at these photographs of, you know, very orderly people standing in queues with their with their ivory as if it's all, you know, a very um, agreed upon process. And of course, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so photographers take took great pains along with, you know, sort of collaborating with soldiers and merchants and the sort of forces that were at play in order to, um, you know, coerce people into into labor and to doing these extraordinary things. And of course, you know, if you know the whole story of King Leopold and the extraordinary, mm-hmm. um, you know, atrocities that took place under that regime and, and sorts of all different parts of Africa, but that was an extraordinarily terrible era for it. So um, the, the picturing of um, colonial extraction of wealth in Africa um, is, a, is a huge theme, and we see it all over the place in lots of different parts of Africa. Um, we see um, ivory, ivory um, carried out, you know, sort of in force, you know, coming to these factories. We see um, images of atrocity that are happening um, by people who weren't, you know, allied with the sort of commercial interests. So there is actually a quite um, complex picture of the situation and marking how colonialism affected people. Um, you know, we, we see the victims of atrocities, um, you know, under King Leopold's regime. And then mm-hmm. we see this sort of orderly um, rise of cities, of electrification, you know, the building of infrastructure. And, um, you know, this the, the sort of underlying framework to that is that imagery of, um, of people civilizing and, and taming what, the, what they thought of as a, as a wild landscape, you know. And once that this was done, you know, the wealth could be taken out and, and could be used. And, hope, and the idea was, you know, maybe in certain cases... Africans themselves would benefit from it, but I think it was it was pretty clear for a lot of places that Europe um, was the main beneficiaries of it. I mean, we see London and Brussels and the landscape of those cities, and it certainly built on on uh, that extractive labor that happened in the 19th and early 20th centuries. There's a terribly sad photograph on page 100, and this is in keeping with uh, what we've just been saying about the Congo, and it's it's a very pared down photograph there's there, there isn't any of the the kind of color and complexity that you see in some of the other photographs in the book but it's a very sad thoughtful looking man sat in the foreground and he's looking at a couple of fairly indistinct objects it's got to be said and then there's just a, a, a bit of countryside a couple of palm trees a road with uh, a figure on the right hand side sta- behind him and this is from 1904 and it's only when i read the um the accompanying little label that I realized what it was. And it's uh, the title is Nsala of Walla with the severed hand and foot of his five-year-old daughter who was murdered by the ABIR militia. And that's what those two indistinct objects are. 
and it's quite horrible. That's the foot and the hand of his five-year-old daughter. Right, right. No, and the thing is that Alice Harris, the the photographer, um, the British photographer, and her husband who were there um, sort of documenting these atrocities were part of a large campaign, a human sort of human rights campaign um, that that really got its start in the UK. Um, there were African-American um, proponents of this. There were sort of people all over the place who were on the ground documenting the atrocities under King Leopold's regime. And so images like Alice Harris's are incredibly important for um, really the, the truth-telling capacity of photography here to, to shock um, and stun viewers who were overseas because, of course, this would have been um, perhaps a commonplace scene if you were living there, but, you know, for people in Europe who, who could have done something and could have protested as they did eventually, um, King Leopold's, um, the practices that were in place, the soldiers and the sort of rule of, of force um, and the sort of reign of terror that, that happened there, um, you know, all for the sake of extracting um, material and goods um, mm -hmm. and sort of treating Africans as if they weren't, were not human. Um, this kind of photograph completely eviscerates all of those arguments and, and makes it very, very clear that, you know, people needed to act. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, you know, 1904, it's a very early example of the use of photography to get across, mm. um, you know, a very vivid social commentary. So while the authorities are using ph photography to show just how uh, bountiful the produce is in the Congo and uh, and just how civilized it is now that they're able to recruit locals as soldiers etc you've also got this this kind of counter campaign again using photography as, as a way to really bring the immediacy of the problem there to uh, people in in places like London to, to get campaigns against Leopold's rule there. It's astonishing. Right. Astonishing. Um, a bit further on in the book, we have a, a much more modern picture that tells us a lot more about, um, shall we say, some of the more modern problems that Africa has faced. Uh, perhaps not so much up to date now, but we're talking about the 1980s. We're talking about uh, South Africa, still deep in apartheid. And it's a picture of, um, of a woman who's the teacher in front of a class of 80 young children. Uh, who are peering out behind her. It's beautifully composed. It, it, it's not set up in the way that you'd imagine. She's kind of sitting back against her desk. Uh, she's got uh, a headscarf on and she, she's got a, a really pleasant smile and, you know, almost a curious smile. And behind her is this enormous wealth of lovely little faces. Some of them, one of them's uh, holding up a pair of uh, what looked like uh, slightly oversized spectacles above his head. And uh, it, it just gives you a picture of what life was like for the African underclass in South Africa at that time. No, exactly. Um, this is 1983. It's a picture by Omar Badshah. And, you know, there were in South Africa at this time, lots and lots of photographers who were considering their mission to photograph all the aspects of South African life under apartheid. And, um, you know, because photography's power to, to sort of suggest and evoke these, you know, these um, political realities, because even in South Africa, in the cities, the white uh, sort of upper, you know, the sort of ruling class would not have had access to these, to even sort of seeing these kinds of images or seeing these realities for people. So, you know, the photograph of the, the classroom, you know, with absolutely no desks in it except for the teachers, you know, a few slates among this group of 80 kids, you know, which are, which are sort of um, ranging in age, you, you don't even get a sense of um, how uh, sort of barricaded and um, segmented life was in South Africa until you... Um, 
I don't know, you can either read the histories or you talk, you talk to the photographers themselves who were saying, you know, we, there was such a, a sense of censorship that happened under, under the apartheid government. So we didn't even know what was happening in our country at the time, um, mm -hmm. unless, um, in, unless you managed to get out and sort of break the laws in order to see these kinds of things, what was happening in the prisons, in the hospitals, you know. And so the effort of photographers to not only capture these images, but, you know, as much as they could get them out of the country and get them into larger uh, journalistic circles, you know, disseminate them around the world. This was all part of, um, of that struggle of, um, you know, loosening the strictures of, of the government, which eventually did collapse, of course, um, you know, about 10 years later. So, um, so images like this, you know, just sort of subtly documenting the average everyday life and, and the way that people just got on with things despite all of this, but um, the shocking um, inequalities that happened there. I mean, there's, there are a lot of, at least for us in the United States, a lot of similarities with just um, the sort of straight documentary photography of the civil rights era, era and what was going on in the South. Um, and the sort of segregation that happened there as well. It's an extremely moving image for me. Mm. And it's one of several from uh, from that period. You've got pictures of um, a squatter camp just outside Cape Town. There's a remarkable photograph uh, on the next page, and this is um, obviously migrant workers in, in Joburg. So this must be the uh, the mining uh, right. migrant workers and they're they're gathered around a, a communal stove and all of the little concrete beds well they just look like shelves to start off with don't they uh they look like somewhere where you just uh uh i don't know dump a a bag of potatoes and and walk away and these are actually the place where they sleep the beds um there's also uh a, a white woman at a shooting range obviously this is when security became a a big concern for the uh for the white population you've got a domestic worker in johannesburg staring with a very very wistful look outside of the uh, outside the kitchen um, window as she's doing some washing up and then the last one on this particular section is a is a, a black woman um, stood outside a, a grocery store that is absolutely stocked full of, pro of produce this is 1986 and she's just got a very big banner around, hung around her neck saying in big letters we starve in rural areas um, I mean this was a it was a very fruitful period for photojournalism wasn't it absolutely and uh and, you know, even the photographers who were working then didn't necessarily even see themselves, all of them at least, as, as photojournalists. They were documenting the, the everyday realities and they saw themselves as activists and as, um, you know, cultural workers um, whose mission it was to, to document, record, make art about, make songs about, write about um, everything about this political system because the, the disinformation, you know, that sort of held that system in place was was astonishing and and so pervasive. So um, at the same time, you know, you talk to the photographers now, and you see that sense of, um, or you hear about that sense of people with placards, people making graffiti on the walls and things like that. You know that there was a very visible sense of people trying to disrupt um, in any way they could those systems of um, uh, you know of you know, the doors for the white people to go in and the doors for the colored and black people to go in. You know, that sort of system that sort of played out on, on everyday, you know, streets and in everyday scenes. And, uh, you know, the, the way in which people were resisting and fighting that in every way that they could. Um, not only people who were coming into the cities illegally because they weren't allowed, they didn't have the passbooks, they didn't have the legal right to come into those cities. 
except to be working, you know, as domestic people are working in shops and homes. Um, and, uh, you know, so we see these sort of bits of defiance everywhere, um, especially in the 80s. And people, you know, took their lives into their hands by making these sorts of protests. Mm, it's remarkable stuff. And then finally, the, the last photograph, uh, and obviously um, <laughs> listeners have got to understand how many were skipping, off, uh, skipping over, just, just how many incredible photographs were skipping over. But uh, there's one that, this one we were talking about a tiny bit beforehand. It's taken in the Niger Delta. Um, <laughs> and it's, I, I really don't know what to make of it. Is it a good photograph? Is it, a, is it, is it, is it just a, a kind of, is, is it not a good photograph? I don't know. It's the top of what looks like some kind of gas or, or oil extraction uh, platform. It's got the, the letters Bonga, B-O-N-G-A, written in the foreground. Um, I suppose the colours are, are, are quite remarkable, quite beautiful. There's a lot of blue in this, the sky, the and then the lights from the different bits of, uh, of mechanics on the platform itself. Can you tell me what's going on here? And do you actually think that this is a, a good photograph? I think I think it's a good question. Um, I think it's an extraordinary photograph. I don't believe that a photograph has to. Um, I, I don't think that a photograph has to um, paint a picture or give us a sense of the picturesque. At the same time, um, it is an incredibly vivid and beautiful photograph. We have these sort of soaring clouds, and then we have this mysterious light happening on this oil platform. This photograph by Babajide Edeni Jones. Um, taken in 2005, you know, when he told me about it, he said, this oil platform, the tidiness, the clearness, the, the few people that are working there, the sort of um, sparse, orderly um, sort of picture that we see here, you know, there's no dirt, there's no grime, there are no sort of laboring masses. It's the opposite, it's the antithesis, you could say, of um, of the, the kind of... Um, government that is supporting. Here we are over here in Lagos. We've got, you know, millions and millions of people coming to this mega city. We have, you know, astonishing wealth and astonishing poverty. And above all, we have this chaos, you know, the chaos of the government, um, the, the, the massive uh, inequalities that are happening, you know, with the Niger Delta and the way in which the money is sort of being siphoned off and where, you know, where's the money for the people who it's supposed to be benefiting. Um, we have this chaotic system here, and then yet here on the Bonga oil platform, there's nothing but um, sort of orderly tidiness. So that contrast only, you know, it, 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 it can't necessarily come out in the photograph. You have to understand the sort of story around it. And hopefully when you start to look at this photograph, it draws you in and makes you wonder what, what is going on here. So for that reason, I think, it, you know, it, it is a, you know, it, it, an extremely powerful moment um, but it's not something that gives away the whole story itself. You know, it doesn't unfold within the photograph. And um, I think that's true for a lot of important imagery from Africa. There's just so little that we, you know, maybe living in the United States or in, or in Europe, um, e even know about the political realities and what's happening there. And by putting these out and giving a platform and realizing that there's actually a lot more around it, there's a whole photographic narrative and there's a whole sort of personal and political and social narrative that's sort of surrounding these in clouds. And we have to, we can't look at this without imagining that that's happening elsewhere. And it's, it's understood when we look at photographs, I think, um, in the United States, you know, but mm -hmm. we we're slowly understanding that wherever it is, you know, whether it's China, where, you know, it's South America, wherever it's happening, there's a larger story that's being told. And I think that photograph of uh, the Bonga oil platform by drawing you in with its intention, 
intense and sort of lush colors, um, you know, makes you wonder and draws you in and then gets you thinking about what is actually happening there. Okay, I'm sold. <laughs> Great. I, 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 I now agree with you. Uh, you. You've explained yourself very well, but you, you've not just explained that. You've, I, I think what you've done there is you've probably explained why this book works uh, overall, because, um, you know, we're talking about the, the actual photographs themselves and, and we have to, especially when we're, we're doing this and it, it's an audio interview. But uh, accompanying all of the photographs, of course, there is an enormous amount of explanation from you. So uh, I think that's why the book works so well. Um, I suppose that's enough about the book just for now. I just wanted to finish up the, the interview and just ask you if, if I mean, you, you lived in West Africa for quite a while. It sounds though like you've traveled, uh, traveled around quite a lot as well. Do you have a favorite place in Africa? I do. I do, definitely. Um, well, I have a couple. Accra in Ghana, the capital city of Ghana. Um, I spent a lot of time. I have, um, you know, really a second family there. Um, it's a lovely, old, beautiful city. It's full of um, chaos and traffic and it's sprawling and dense along with everything else. And people are, are completely relaxed, friendly. The food is um, just ridiculously lush, complicated, beautiful <laughs> and, uh, and fantastic. And, uh, and um, my friends that are there are um, just some of the most interesting people, uh, generous, thoughtful um, and uh, and uh, provocative group of people to have conversations with, and I and I, I love them and I miss them, and uh, and they also have an amazing salsa scene, or at least they did when I was last there. So I, mm. you can always go and have fun in Accra. Okay, and you said that there were two. Was there well, another actually, one? Well, actually, I li I like uh, Cotonou a bit uh, too, which is a, t a city on the coast in Benin, um, not too far away. You just take a taxi or you drive over there and get, and um, you can also have. Um, a, a beautiful time wandering around the city, um, meeting meeting people, hanging out, and um, and enjoying enjoying the sun and the surf. But um, to me, the the most interesting thing is is the people that you meet and the relationships that you form. So. Fantastic. Well, Erin, thank you so much indeed for this. Uh, as I said at the beginning, I wondered how it would work doing a, a book about photography, but. Uh, Two things. One, I haven't banged the microphone too much as I was leafing through the book. And, and the second, I hope that we have actually managed to get a, a bit of a flavor of what the photographs look like. Um, there's so many here and it's so difficult to um, to approach it. But I hope we've succeeded. I hope so, too. Thank well, you so much, Nicholas. It was really a pleasure talking to you. And that was my interview with Erin Haney, the author of Exposures, Photography and Africa one that I thoroughly recommend that you track down if you're interested in either Africa or photography. This is Nicholas Walton from the New Books Network, wishing you a good day from here in London. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.